Welcome to the Life After Sugar podcast. The podcast that's not just about sugar, but about your relationship with it and also with food and especially with yourself. So if you want to discover your life after sugar and hear inspiring stories from all kinds of people who also cut out sugar in their way, at their pace, for their own reasons, this is the podcast for you. Because you know, when you take away the sugar, you can finally discover the real sweetness in your life. I'm your host, Netta Gorman, and today I'm talking with Dr. Vera Tarman, who's the author of the book Food Junkies, as well as the presenter of the podcast of the same name. The way that Dr. Vera Tarman talks about food addiction in her book is so touching and so real because it's based on her personal clinical experience about herself and her patients who cope with compulsive overeating problems, binge eating, obesity, anorexia, and bulimia. Food Junkies tackles the complex and very often poorly understood issue of food addiction, but from the perspective of a medical researcher and, of course, dozens of her patients. When I first reached out to Dr. Vera Tarman, I wanted to know the story behind the white coat, her story. Just before we get into our chat, I want to invite you to download your own simple guide to getting more energy with less sugar on my website, aftersugarclub.com. Just click on the tab, Simple Guide, to download it. And you can also get my five tips to help you with sugar cravings. That's on the podcast page on aftersugarclub.com. Click on the tab, Podcast, and download my five tips to help you with sugar cravings. And if you're ready and committed to really break free from sugar, then join us in the After Sugar Club. Go to aftersugarclub.com and click on the green button, join the club. You can also come say hi on my Facebook page, Life After Sugar, and on my Instagram account at mylifeaftersugar, which is where I post pictures of what I eat, and you'll see that it's absolutely possible to live an active and fun life, even if you don't eat sugar. So here's my chat with Dr. Vera Tarman. So I've listened to a few of your podcasts and I, and I, I got the sense that you uh, do uh, sort of talk behind the scenes about the, per- the people um, and the personal story. So I thought uh, I often just allude to that quickly in my uh, various uh, ventures, but uh, not in a lot of detail. So I can um, do a little bit of that now. You know, I've been working in this field of food addiction for, uh, I think, probably... 15 years or something like that, maybe, maybe, maybe between 15 and 20 years um, professionally. Uh, and uh, I have a sort of personal story behind the passion um, that keeps me going because it's, you know, I'm not making any money out of this. I, I don't even want to practice out of this. Like a lot of people will email me and say, can you help me? You know, can I be your patient? And unlike in, in the States where people do stuff like this as a kind of self-promotion for me, really, it is just, uh, I guess I want to promote the book, my book, but that's really just to promote the message. Um, so what keeps me going is, um, 
a, a desire to pass the message on um, and to keep the message going because I think it's an important message. And one of the things I've discovered in the podcast is that um, I have, even though I've felt alone for many years, in fact, there have been many people feeling alone in all pockets of various cities doing very much the same thing. Uh, so, you know, this is this, this is the era of where we're actually discovering each other, thanks to Zoom and stuff like that. But in my early days, I felt very much alone and um, just felt like, uh, it was my passion to get the message out that kept me going. And the reason why I had that passion is because I, like so many people, young women, and I knew that I was like many young women at that time, I just didn't have a name for it, uh, really struggled with um, my eating behavior and my weight. Because, you know, if you're a woman, you're aware of your weight. Like it's just comes with the territory. It doesn't matter what you look like. It absolutely does. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, early days, um, like when I was when I was young, like 14, 15, I was actually quite small for my age, because um, I just was in an environment, a home environment where um, food was not part, it was like my parents put the food on the table, and I didn't have any money. So it just wasn't a, a way for me to, uh, um, to abuse it other than like Halloween and, and uh, Christmas and stuff like that. So I always knew that I liked food, but it wasn't really a venue until I left home uh, in my teens. And um, I, 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 you know, struggle with, you know, am I really first an alcoholic? Am I really first a food addict? I, I, I don't really know because they all sort of came on the same scene. And were, I you, were I, you aware that you had some sort of, yeah. dependent relationship with yes. alcohol or food yes in your teens. yeah yeah absolutely and I remember when I was like 17 years old feeling very proud that I had discovered you know like so many of us we don't know how to live life and um I remember thinking I found cigarettes smoking and I found coffee and I found food in the form of cheeseburgers that was my thing uh and I remember thinking I've got the answer now. I know how to cope. I have my um, my my coffee, my cigarette, my cheeseburger, and then I was just discovering um, alcohol and pot, and uh, that was at that point still just uh, it was a way to socialize with people. But that sense of I need this to um, get by, I felt very proud. I found the tool to survive. Um, and can I ask you what it was that you felt that you need to cope with? I, just the anxieties of you know m m moving into the world. I, in my like in my earlier years, I was a real. I thought I was an introvert. I actually don't think I am. I think I'm an extrovert. But for many years, I thought I was an introvert, and I was a book reader. So it's read, 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 and was um, alone a lot of the time. Um, and uh, you know, it's very easy to be alone and read books. Uh, so when I moved out into the world, like, how do I be with these people? I didn't know how to do that. So found these uh, coffee, cigarettes and whatnot. And I kind of was able to manage as a teenager, because that's a hard time, you know, to be in the world. Um, and then um, I found out fairly quickly that alcohol was, um, I mean, I, I do think I have an addiction, addictive streak and I found that um, alcohol just uh, I, I couldn't cope I couldn't drink and cope so I had to stop and I had to stop I discovered that after two years of being in university and um, um, uh, just living a life that was very isolated you know 
I had a place in a residence where you were supposed to share a room always with somebody, but I was the one kid uh, that had my own room because I had problems. <laughs> it's funny now. And was so, it you that was it you that sort of identified that you had problems, or was it identified for you? Um, I think I recognized it. But, you know, the thing that I always thought is it's not a problem. It's just me. This is who I am. And I don't know if that's a problem, but it's just me. Um, I didn't have words like that until, you know, much later. But I knew that um, I knew that um, smoking pot and drinking, there was just no way I could work. And and I was very ambitious because I, uh, I come from an immigrant background and uh, we were very much like we came to Canada to make it make good. And uh, so I knew that I couldn't be ambitious and also do these uh, behaviors. So I stopped um, them. But then what happened is food suddenly became ever more enticing than it ever was before. And that was like a, a, a shock because until then I knew alcohol, you know, puts me, um, I mean, like literally, uh, cutting myself and, you know, behaviors that I knew were not good, but I still felt I had some agency. But when I stopped all of that and then uh, started to um, struggle with my food, either restricting or overeating, um, uh, it just felt like something was bigger than me in a way that I had not, uh, it, it was, um, I just remember sometimes sitting on my bed and the residents going, I don't understand this. What is this thing? It's like this monster would take over inside of me, which I talk about in the book as this, uh, well, I mean, uh, Bitten Johnson talks about, you know, the red dog. To me, it just felt like a breathing, nasty monster inside that would take over. Um, and so I struggled with that. And it seemed to get worse and worse the more I struggled um, to the point where I literally I mean, this is in the 70s when even the words eating disorder were fairly new. And now if I walked in with my symptoms, I would have said, yeah, she has a bulimia. Um, but I didn't know then. I just knew that I was just really something weird was happening with me. And I even went. Can you, can you, sorry, can you explain to us a bit about what it was, what your behaviors actually translated into? Well, it was like um, a. Uh, first of all, it felt like I was in a hornet's nest all the time. And the hornets were these thoughts, which were, um, how many calories have you had today? Okay, you've had uh, 900. That's perfect. Well, then, then uh, you know, can you just, man, you can still have another 100. What can you do? And I would say, no, please leave me alone. It's, you know, 11 o'clock at night. I've got to go to bed. Well, just have that 1,100 calories. Uh, and so then I would go downstairs to the uh, vending machine and uh, have 600 calories with three chocolate bars or something. And then it would be, how can you get rid of those? Can you go out, get up earlier in the morning and run? Like, it's like the thoughts would just, it was like a sting, a, a, like a hornet's nest. And it, it, they just wouldn't go away. And so my behavior would be that I would be eating, 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 or sitting with my calculator. We had manual calculators then figuring out the calories or going down to the vending machine, looking at the machines, eating them, or throwing them up. Like it was, it was always one of those things. And the idea of rest in between, there were times when I would sit and I would think, wouldn't it be nice to just sit 
and not think anything like nothing nothing um because that moment, peace in your head yeah like even just five minutes because the moment there would be a pause button another one of those hornets would just find its way in so that i went to the uh, emergency at one point when i'd had enough like at, at, at the local um a psych ward um and i said I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm obsessed about food. And I remember an intern came down, I had to tell a little story, and then another person came down and, it, and then they eventually said at like two in the morning, okay, you can go. And I said, no, I can't go. I'm here because if I go home, I'm going to binge and purge for the rest of the night. And I can't do that. Anyway, they let me go. And of course I did that. And then I ended up doing behaviors like um, hanging out with people that I did not want to hang out with just so that I would not be on my own. Um, and like, just, just so that I wouldn't be alone. And you know, the kind of out of, out of the frying pan into the fire. Kind yeah, of. yeah. How old were you at this point? I was, um, at this point, I was about 18 or 19, something like that. At university? Um, yes, at university, yeah. What were you studying at university? At that point, I, at that point I was studying for an English degree. So, because okay. I was a reader, I loved reading and it you know, was just great. Um, uh, science and all that didn't come until much later. Um, and then, and then I heard about going to uh, um, England to, you know, travel because that was the thing we did in the seventies. We traveled, um, and I, you know, my goal was one day I'm going to go to India and I'm going to go to England. And I thought the geographical cure. I'm going to be so busy meeting so many people, you know, getting hostels, doing. This, I won't have time to eat. That didn't happen at all. I got to England, was given, a, I was working as a, in a hotel. I was given a, a hotel room with somebody else. That didn't matter. I found the stairwell and I just figured out how to work around that. And it, there I would walk the streets at night thinking I can't go home because then I'll do this binge purging thing. It, 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 anyway, so it was it was just misery, misery. Did you feel that you were stuck, that there was nothing to be done? Yeah. Well, I kept trying um, and I, I would I would think, OK, I'll just give in. Well, I would stop because I, what, what happened was is my weight, which was always, like I said, sort of on the smaller side, stopped being on. It was like like my weight now. And then I started to gain a little bit more. And I was getting more worried. And of course, the more worried I got, the more obsessed. And then that whole cycle got even worse. And we all know you can you you gain weight by multiple diets. That's what happened to me. And there was a point at which I said, you just got to stop the diet and just become as fat as it, whatever's going to happen. Well, then that is what happened. I just, the weight didn't stop. And it's like, come on, it's got to stop at some point, but it didn't because I was just, I don't know, so obsessed. Um, so, so how, how did that get, how many years did it take for you to put on the weight that you put on? I, I you know, I think probably um, I gained a, like, I mean, I ultimately gained 100 pounds more than I am now. Um, I think probably I gained about 50 pounds in that whole process. I was also running all the time. And I, of course, was throwing up all the time. I got to be very good at that. And, and really, like life for a long time was uh, even when I went to India, he says, I thought that would do it, too. That didn't do it. I just found I could eat chapati and banana. I could find ways to get around it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and and uh, I would sort of narrow it down to maybe three or four binges and purges and that would get me through a night which is just unpleasant and my weight so my weight um like I said 50 60 pounds when I finally got into medical school fast forward further ahead um and started eating that food 
which was just like French fries. And I don't know. I mean, I remember thinking because I didn't know this stuff very well. I remember thinking if it's in a hospital, um, if, if it's being offered by a medical school, it's got to be okay. So yeah, even, that's got to be the biggest irony ever. I know, I know. And that's when I gained most of my weight was in medical school uh, because I thought, well, okay. And plus I was studying all the time and I wasn't able to run and I didn't want to do the whole throwing up thing. So by the time, um, yeah, I was, uh, you know, a hundred pounds more. Plus I'd found a partner who um, uh, loved to bake and, you know, would every week, would bake me one or two cakes in the week. Like that would be the Friday night and the Sunday night treat. And yeah, and that's not self-sabotage at all. No. no. <laughs> so listen, so you're in med school. Yeah. And did they teach you at med school how human biology works and the metabolism? Oh, no, uh, nothing like that. But I mean, I was in med school, like just preliminary, like just the, the, you know, chemistry and biology and stuff. So that would have been more appropriate, I guess, during internship or in clinical work, of which I learned nothing there either. But I wasn't really expecting to there. I was just, there was so much to do that the idea of going out to run or do anything like that was like, forget it, I have to study. Plus I had an English background. I didn't have a science background. And I was uh, um, invited to go into a school um, where you didn't have to have an English background, but you had to show that you were willing to, you know, make up by doing extra work. So that's- You mean you didn't have to have a scientific background, you mean? No, no, you didn't. But you had to work harder, which I was able to demonstrate through other things that I did that I would be willing to do. So I did. And and uh, I, I remembered that, you know, in high school, I loved biology, um, but I didn't have any idea about medical school at that point. But I mean, in med school, I, we would think from the outside looking in that what you actually learn about is human biology. Mm-hmm. And that you would, at some point, somebody would teach you that, you know, eating less and running more is not going to do it. Oh, yeah, but we're not even doing that today. Like, that's not even happening today. You know, this is the thing that we're fighting about in our podcasts and in our books. And, you know, it's what people are saying, including our leaders like, uh, uh, you know, Robert Lustig and uh, Gary Tobes. You know, it's it's like it's so obvious now in the science, but in the in the medical schools, it's still being taught the uh, other way. I'm still uh, butting heads with GPs that are coming out with this belief that it's, you know, calories in and uh, calories out. Yeah. But it really wasn't happening then. Um, yeah, it takes us English teachers to put things straight, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that it, it, if there was an acknowledgement of disordered eating, it was all coming from the eating disorder model, which was just figure out what your problem is and cut down. And uh, of course, that never worked. Of course, yeah. So, so here you were demonstrating these behaviors of what yeah. we today or you today know is was an eating disorder but it wasn't recognized as such it just wasn't on anyone's radar yeah. how did you get from having these behaviors not really knowing how to identify them to actually putting your finger on it and saying hey wait a minute this is what i've got yeah yeah um yeah so so i had um one of the things that I think probably most professionals learn to do um, is really diversify or compartmentalize. So that here's a person with a problem. Here's me. 
there is no commonality. I'm listening with my white coat and, and uh, I'm listening to you, but I'm not recognizing that there's any behavior. And, and the stuff like the, the, the Vera that I was disgusted by and ashamed by didn't walk into the waiting room or the office. It was somewhere in the back in the dark, uh, late at night when I was by myself, which is of course not true, but that's how it seemed. And, you know, there would be times when I would look at myself in like there might be a mirror in the waiting room going to get a patient thinking, how can I be telling this person to do these things that I am not doing myself? And it would be like this little blip of awareness and then it was gone. Um, uh, so I, for, for a long time, felt disgust, but it was private. And it was, like I said, scheduled for night. And I had very difficult time sleeping, uh, insomnia problem. Um, but it wasn't until I got into... Um, I worked in the uh, HIV field for almost 10 years, uh, and I, I really loved that work. Um, and it was, I put, I put a lot of passion into that work and, you know, that, that, this, that break between professional and private was very clear. And then when that kind of ended, I got into the addiction field because I didn't want to do general medicine. It, it's it's uh, just too slow moving. And I liked the stuff that was more, uh, I guess, dramatic drama. We like drama. Oh, of course, <laughs> you're going to have some and, drama, especially and, and, if you're binging and purging. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I recognize my behavior in clients more and more as I saw more and more people with addiction. And, and I, I'm still all this time trying to control, but sort of not really thinking I will. Or what I would do is I'd find control for a few months and then I'd lose it. And then I'd find, I just accepted that was life. I, I'd be on a good um, spin and then on a bad one, a bad you know slip. And then I'd Can I ask you, what would trigger the bad part, the bad spin? Um, just that the good didn't last that long. Like it might just be a slightly bad day and I've, I'm managing on like maybe three or four binge purges or maybe uh, uh, just a tub of haagen and that's enough, uh, you know, ice cream in a night, like in a night or a certain amount of candy and cake. And then I would need more and then it would just, it, it didn't take much. Uh, it was like almost like a few months and then I somehow knew it wouldn't last and then I have to find something else. And it was a constant uh, juggle. It felt like I was juggling all the time. And this was part of the story of Vera. I, I, at this point, I guess I could have said by now it's bulimia, but I wasn't interested in going to uh, get help because again, this was my night problem, not my day problem. And there's no way I'm going to go in the day and see clinicians that I know like no way no thank you yeah because you were in like in this position of being yeah white coat yes right? exactly. you're supposed to be sort of untouchable no. perfect yeah, yeah. You've got and it all together and there is a a, a a you know a group for doctors who are in trouble you know in all of the colleges um but you know they were the ones with problems that that wasn't going to be me but it was one day like my aha moment is um when um, I, it wasn't so much what's my problem, it was uh, what's the solution because I'm forever coming up with a new idea. It's gonna be popcorn, it's going to be muffins, it's gonna be Starbucks lattes and that like, it'll be something for a few months. And, and one day I just thought, um, I remember a while ago um, when I was doing nothing, no sugar at all, I was really good for like six months. I was smoking pot because I would do something. Uh, and then my partner came into the room with some sweet and I said, oh, you better not have that there. And um, 
uh, she said, okay, well, okay, I won't, but now I had a little bit, and then I was back slipping again. And I remembered that, and I thought, I'm going to treat this like I tell my patients to treat this like an addiction. That was my aha moment. Um, I'm just going to try this as a trial because it worked. I don't know why, you know, th those many tries ago uh, for six months, and it worked, it worked, it worked. And, it's, and for, it's, you to, for you to say to yourself, I'm going to treat this as an addiction, just like I do with my patients. Yeah. I mean, I find that re that required of you a lot of humility. Yeah, but the, 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 that dark part of me was, um, I, I mean, there. I, how can I be arrogant when I'm like throwing up, you know, like, like it, it's... It, that's not where my pride is. My pride was in the day with the white coat. This was the disgusting part of me. And, and uh, I was willing to do anything like that was the, it, but it's so, it really was very uh, uh, compartmentalized or whatever the word is. Compartmentalized. Yeah. yeah. For, for your two sort of two yeah. identities. Yeah. About and, how old were you when you had this? I, I, think, I, I think I was like in my forties then. And, and then uh, that I was good with that. I knew I couldn't have sugar. But what ended up happening is, is I ended up drinking um, because I also knew, like I would do those. I would be clean for a while of alcohol and then I would slip because I go, oh, what's the point? It doesn't matter. And I remember um, drinking at a party and then the food was right in my face and I couldn't say no. So then that, that sort of told me, oh my God, uh, these are the same thing because I do this and I'm going to want this. Um, and so I, I figured as much as I didn't want to, I'd have to, if I wanted to stop sugar, as this trial, I'd also have to stop alcohol. Um, and so I did that um, for quite a while until um, I think, yeah, I did that. And and then there was, a, I don't know, maybe a year that I had quit sugar. And then um, the desire to drink again became really strong stronger than it had been before it just it, i just began to see that the the line was blurred it really was blurred between sugar and alcohol and sugar and alcohol and same with pot and uh, i i was lucky i consider myself very lucky now that i was in a generation where it wasn't that easy for me to get cocaine or opiates um not like it is today or i would have done those too but that that would have required an extra effort that i didn't want to do because i was too busy with school and all the rest of it uh, but I really am very grateful because I think I could have easily gone into that. But my experience and then seeing it with my patients, it, that it's all the same thing. I just became convinced over this experimental period of like um, uh, may maybe the whole thing lasted about a year. Um, and, and then I started to, because I'm thinking about it from an addiction point of view, hear about 12 step. And so then I um, looked into some of them. I didn't like OA. Uh, because when I went to those meetings, they, I mean, I was messed up, but at least what I was doing was working. The, the meetings that I went to, people were um, not, I guess we say now they were still in their disease. So I, they didn't have what I wanted. Um, now I know you have to shop around. I didn't know that then. I thought an OA meeting is an OA meeting. Now I know, no, you got to go to the right one, um, like where there's recovery. But I've heard about um, another one called um, Food Addicts Anonymous, and they had taken out flour as well as sugar. And um, uh, that made me think, well, the theory makes sense. And I don't know how I'm not going to eat flour. That means no muffins. That means no. Uh, and, you know, I used to think eating muffins was way better than eating ice cream. Yeah. A little better, yeah. but not much. Not much. 
but it made a big difference to quit the flower. Uh, and that just made, I guess from then on the, the desire uh, to keep on this path, I became more committed to. And then finally, um, I, I uh, crossed on 2008. Now I'm getting into addiction as a, I mean, HIV was now becoming more and more of a, a specialty among specialists, as opposed to anybody who was willing to work in that field. I mean, I was there when we were like, there were so many of us and we were going to people's homes and all. anyway, it became a specialized field and I, I, that wasn't me. Um, uh, I started to specialize in addiction and that's when I came across Nora Volko's writing. So the science, uh, and she started, I think that, that, that was a, a seminal article in um, 2006 or 2008 about um, um, addiction as, um, or that we can be addicted to food, like the same pathways. And then I came across Nicole Levina's work a few years later, and it was like, okay, now I've got my science. And as long as, you know, it's like Bill W. I don't know if I'm going to help anybody, but while I'm on the pathway of speaking this way, it's keeping me clean. Fantastic. And, and you're not alone anymore either, right? You, you, there were others that were studying this and recognizing food addiction as actually being a thing. Yes. Well, but, but yes, they were. Uh, at, the point, at that point, it was still not food addiction per se, but addictiveness of food. And, yes. and, um, but to actually see it as a clinical syndrome, I think people still struggle with that now. But um, I, because I worked in the field of addiction and saw addiction like alcohol and cocaine, um, I could say there is a condition that's called food addiction and it has the same progressive nature as, like I, I think I went beyond just it's addictive, but it, you become an addict with all of the other features. Yeah, um, and I'm, I'm reading Michael Moss's new book, Hooked, yes. which tells the, the history of addiction, food addiction. Yeah. And it, it set, part of it is saying that not everyone becomes addicted right. to food. So, right. so that food can be addictive, yes. but we're not all with an, that kind of addictive personality exactly is that, is that what you found in your case yes, yes. and and he very openly says he's not one of them uh, one of us and i know very very well through my own experience that i am one of us and i yes. know i'm not a bulimic because um uh, it, it's not about the emotional i can be super happy it doesn't matter what if i have if I have it, I'm going to want it. And so I have to protect my, it doesn't matter what my mood is. And I remember I actually went to, a, when I, in my internship, um, I went to, there was no food addiction program to check out, but there was eating disorder program to check out, <coughs> excuse me. And I remember saying to uh, the social worker, you're asking people to eat dessert at night and they're telling you they don't want to. And you're telling them, yes, you have to, because we want you to normalize this stuff. And I said, <clears throat> that would not work for me and they didn't get it they didn't get it and that's when and i knew that's not me that's a, that's the everything in moderation approach mm -hmm. and you yeah. know it does work for some people but what bothers me is that it's given as a one-size-fits-all yeah. to everyone it doesn't take into account that we're all different exactly exactly it does not no and it negates our reality yeah you know, and it's so annoying. <laughs> it really frustrates me because they're yeah. supposed to be the food experts and yes. yet they're negating such yes. a huge part of the population. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, that, that those many years ago when I went to that uh, 
a psychiatric ward uh, saying, please let me in, like, let me in, because I don't want to be left to my own devices. Um, they did actually uh, hook me up with a, uh, uh, a psychiatrist or therapist, I think, that I went to before I went to England to do my geographical cure. And I just remember thinking, this, this is not helping at all, like not at all, because it wasn't about the psychic dynamic. And not only not helping, but sometimes actively hindering. Yes, yes. What I needed was for somebody to say, here's what you can eat. Let's figure out what's safe and what's not safe. And um, you you go and come back next week and tell me how you did with that. Yeah, yeah. That's and something for you yes. rather than yes. here's a pyramid. Let's yeah. <laughs> fit you inside it. Yeah. So that's my that's my sort of personal story, and it's it's just continued, you know. Since then, uh, since I discovered that no sugar and no flour worked better for me, uh, in the last five or six years, I came across another twelve step program which also said no grains. And uh, when I tried that, that was even better. Like you know, it feels more restrictive, but in fact, it's not more restrictive. Well, it's more liberating in my experience. Yes. Yes. So that's sort of where I am today. And uh, I, I'm aware that as I get older, like I'm cutting more dairy out than ever. I think I, I, uh, I eat very little now. Um, and I'll probably cut that out at some point uh, because, you know, I'm getting older and we become more sensitized and I just got to go with it. But this yeah. is still much better than that rutting um, creature. Like I felt like there was this boar, this pig inside. I mean, some people say I... I, I it's not very nice, but it's felt like turn the lights off and I'm left with this, this creature inside me, which is pawing the earth and it's not pleasant. Anyway, that thing is, is sleeping dormant. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so you put him to sleep yeah. by not feeding him. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And at what point in your journey did you write your book? Uh, that was, well, the first, it's in its second edition. Uh, so the first edition, I think, was 2014 or 15. So we're looking at now, um, I guess, eight years ago. Um, and the book, I, I, I started speaking out. Like I said, I've been doing this for about 15 years. I guess it's not longer than 15. Um, maybe a couple of years before. So maybe about 10 years ago, I had Norma Volko's article and a few others. And I was sort of standing on the street side, shouting to whoever would listen to me. Like, I mean, literally, it wasn't the street side, but like a community center, talking to libraries where there's maybe eight people in the damn audience, like whatever, whatever it took. I had to do this. Um, but people would say to me more when I would bemoan the fact that, you know, why aren't people listening? Um, you gotta write a book. You gotta write a book. I said, I'm an English initial, my first degree is, in, I know it's not easy to write a book. Like you don't just write a book. You um, no. <laughs> I got a full practice, I'm busy. Uh, I, I, I can't, anyway, um, I, I got convinced that um, I had to write a book because that's what would make people listen. And so I um, knew of a couple of people who, uh, from the Food Institute, um, uh, Food Addiction Institute in the States, who were researchers who knew the research, spoke with them, and they sort of helped gather because I needed research, obviously, uh, to synthesize. And I'm a good synthesizer. So I, I sort of sat down and uh, started to write the clinical knowledge that I had and applied the synthesis. Um, and it took, uh, with the help of, of research that had already been done, um, about a year to write. But that was not an easy year. Like, I wouldn't want to write a second book. I totally get it. I mean, 
it's a huge, it's much, it's a much bigger undertaking writing oh, yeah. book than you would ever imagine. I know, uh, writing a book is full-time work. And if anyone says yes. it's not, then they're not, then they're not, I mean, it's, it's more than just putting words to page. As you can tell, so many self-published books are not well-written right. because they need to be edited well. They need to be all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I, I spent a long time trying to get um, uh, publishers interested in the book. And I almost got a bite from, uh, I think it was Random House, which is a big name um, uh, in, in like Toronto D division of Random House. And then, uh, which was great. I was thrilled, you know, uh, that I got this interview. And then at the end of the interview, um, they said, you know, we'll talk to you later after I gave my pitch. And then they said, this is a niche topic. It's, it's, it's just not enough of an audience. What? Which I thought, How is that possible? Every woman worries about her weight. Yes. And in the food that we're eating today, how many of us are addicted? It's not niche, but I didn't know the words. And I don't know. I don't know if that would still be the case now, but um Anyway, I found a publisher in Canada that was willing to take it, thanks to a very good agent, um, that was willing to take a chance. So I didn't have to self-publish. Um, and I consider that to be a, a, a grace from God because it's really hard to get a book published now. Very hard. Yes, absolutely. Um, what, can you tell us the title of your book? Uh, well, the, the first version was uh, Food Junkies, The Truth About Food Addiction. And um, I, uh, like, you know, there was no money to be made. That was a money pit. It's like getting an expensive dog. You know, you put more and more money into it. It, 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 it. I had to do all the promo. I had to do all the travel. And, the, you know, again, talking to audiences of six and eight people. And mm. anyway, um, it's fine. I had the book and more and more people started to listen. And then the second edition came out. Um, there weren't that many podcasts. Like this is a, a phenomena, I think, really since covid we're really seeing a lot of it, but there were TV shows. I had a couple of um, co-hosted TV shows, which I was lucky to get. Um, and then because of that, the publishers were willing to let me do a second edition. And this one's called Food Junkies, The Recovery from Food Addiction. And um, they were just, you know, it's a small Canadian uh, publisher. They're not expecting huge sales, um, but they did say, here's the issue around the cover of the book, because there's all those donuts and people are, always saying, how can you have donuts on your book, uh, which is about food addiction, which is what I told them. I said, you can't do this. Um, Doesn't make sense. No. And I actually got um, hired a couple of photographers, uh, bought, bought pictures from them um, to say like a beautiful grapes. I don't know if you've seen my uh, Facebook page, but it's a really nice picture of strawberries and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I said, uh, can you use this? And they said, no, nah, no, nah, it's not going to sell. We want the other one. I mean, it's true that they know what's going to sell. And it's I said, it's ironic. It's ironic. It right? is ironic. Yet another irony in the whole yeah, story. Yeah. I mean, I read your book, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and it made a huge impression on me because I felt that you as a medical doctor got it. Not only do you get it for oh. people who do have addictive behaviors with food, but you also lived it. Yeah, yeah. And that helps to get it. Yes, and continue to live it. I mean, I'm willing to say that, you know, this is something, you know, that Vera late at night that's just waiting, it's always there waiting. And as long as I don't feed it, it's it's an arm's length away. And I'm very aware of that. Very yes. Aware of that. I think it's a very inspiring message to send out to people that kind of may feel 
guilty or ashamed mm. about how they are, whereas there's hundreds of thousands of us exactly. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other thing is, as I was speaking more about the book, um, you know, I, especially with journalists, I would they, they would come and they would be like, oh, this is kind of weird and fun and let's, let's ask some crazy questions. And the more I talked very seriously about this, the more by the end of the interview, it was almost like a, a, a story in itself, a story arc in itself, uh, the person would sort of hang up the phone or, or say, okay, we're, we're no longer recording. I think I might be a food addict, or I think my wife might be, or something like this. It was as if something, uh, it, it went from being this kind of crazy thought to that's what you're talking about. And I think that the more people really listen to this, they're going to recognize it's prevalent. It's prevalent and it, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. And I want to take, like you, like you, we want to take this out of the closet, as it were, and just stop it from being this massive taboo. Yes, that's right. Because we're all in our little dark corners thinking yes. we're all alone in this. And yes. yet there's, there's more than hundreds of thousands of us. Yes, that's right. And, you know, we're all hating ourselves and feeling a lot of shame. And uh, it's, it's uh, I, I like to say that it's just our brains re responding to a very toxic environment. And, yeah. uh, you know, if there's any shame or anger, it should be external to the pushers. Yeah, to the food industry. Yeah, the food Absolutely. Industry. I totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's an amazing story to, to listen to your story. And can you just tell us how the, the title of your podcast and how people can get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, but let me say, first of all, Netta, thank you so much, because it's podcasts like this that people will like to shame bust, bust the shame and to normalize this. And so that people can go, yeah, that is me. Or that if that part of me, that is me, I don't have to feel ashamed about like, and it'll only happen the more we hear it and the more we talk about it this openly. So I thank you for that. Um, how you can find out more about uh, my writing is, well, I've got the Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction, which you can find um, on Amazon. Uh, easily. I should, probably shouldn't promote Amazon, but anyway, um, I have my Facebook page, which is I'm Sweet Enough Sugar Free for Life, um, which is free, and please join that. I have the podcast that I'm actually doing with two other wonderful uh, uh, people as a team of three of us, and it's called Food Junkies. Um, I think just Food Junkies podcast. Yeah, love that podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, and it's a really good podcast because they're really good. And I think I'm pretty good. And we get good speakers and uh, we, we research and study. This is not just a, you know, what did you do yesterday? It's a really, I think it's, I'm, I mean, I've just spent the last week preparing for the one for next week. So I think it's definitely worth listening to. Um, and then I have my, my uh, webpage, which is um, uh, addictionsunplugged.com. Oh, fantastic. I'll put those those links with the show and thank you so much for talking with me yeah and fellow canadian in toronto thank you <laughs> thank you and keep in touch hopefully we'll we'll do another episode down the line yes thank you what a fantastic chat with dr vera tarman and how rare is it for us to have like the inside story from a health professional from a doctor who is willing to be vulnerable and figuratively to take off her white coat and to tell us her own story. And in this case, Vera's own story with food addiction and specifically with sugar and flour.
And do join her Facebook group because she's very active in there and always gives 100% fantastic advice. And read her book, Food Junkies. And if you're like me, and you don't necessarily identify yourself as a food addict or a sugar addict, but you know that you have some kind of emotional or unhealthy relationship with sugar, and you want to break free from that and get to a place where you don't even want or miss sugar anymore, and you're committed to your own well-being, then join us in the After Sugar Club. It's a private membership with a monthly subscription and twice-monthly check-in calls on Zoom where you get all the support, the encouragement and the accountability and guidance that you need to really break free from sugar for good. Go to aftersugarclub.com and click on the button, join the club. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you find that the Life After Sugar podcast is helping you live your life after sugar with more joy and more fun, then let me know. Rate the podcast and scroll down and leave me a review and let me know how the podcast is helping you. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you'll receive the episode magically every Sunday. Thank you for listening. That's it for this week. Keep in touch and see you soon for another episode.